Thank you so much for being here. It's great to be with you guys. If you happen to be new or visiting, uh, we're really glad you're joining us, whether you're online or here in person. And if you're new, my name's Don. I'm one of the pastors on the team here at Grace. And uh, this morning, we are in part two of our series. There we are teaching through the book of Daniel. And we're kind of taking these first parts, just kind of one chapter at a time. So our text for today is Daniel chapter 2, and the title of the message today is just Troubling Dreams. Well, most of you are probably familiar with the concept of what's called multitasking, right? Multitasking is when you're doing several things at one time and trying to manage and complete all of them effectively. When I think about multitasking, one of the things that sometimes comes to my mind is you may have seen on these old variety shows, the guy who would come out and he'd spin a plate on a stick and then he'd add another one and then he'd add another one and he's spinning them and spinning them and now he's got eight or ten going and he's going all back and forth trying to keep them all going. Well, that's a little bit of a sense of what multitasking can be like. And multitasking can be a useful skill if you're good at it. And some of us are pretty good at multitasking. And some of us, to be honest, are really not so good at it. Some of us are really just better off maybe taking one thing at a time and focusing on that. And multitasking can be even more difficult and challenging when the several things you're trying to do, they all have to work together in harmony and unity. And so whether you're good at multitasking or not so good at it, there is no one who multitasks like God. (laughs) God is the ultimate multitasker. And in our text for today in Daniel chapter 2, God's infinite multitasking skills are really on full display here. And in this passage, we get a a window into his marvelous wisdom and power. And as he is working multiple things together at multiple levels, all in perfect harmony and unity. All for his sovereign good purposes and the good of his people. And so the big idea, if there's a big idea for the message today, it's really simply that, that God is always working all things for his good purposes and the good of his people. God is always working all things for the, his good purposes and the good of his people. Now, chapter 2 in Daniel is a long chapter, and it's got a lot of text to it, so we're not going to read the whole thing today. I'm going to summarize parts of it, and we'll kind of drop into some of the key parts of the passage and read those together as we go through. So before we jump into this story, let's take a moment and ask God for his help. Lord, we come to you this morning in need of your spirit and your grace to grant us revelation, illumination into your word and your truth. Lord, help us to see what you have for us this morning in this chapter in Daniel. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bring glory to your name through this passage and you would honor the person and work of your son and 
and you would bless and serve your people this morning as well. And so, Lord, I pray that you would grant grace to me to help me speak faithfully and accurately to what you want to say to your people this morning. And, Lord, we give you the glory, but we ask that you would bless through your spirit each one here today. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me give you a little context as we come to chapter 2. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of the Babylonian Empire, and the Babylonian Empire was uh, the uh, ruling the entire known earth in the time when this was written. And so Nebuchadnezzar was not only the most powerful man on earth, but it might be said that he was probably also one of the most ruthless men on earth. The Babylonians were known for being merciless and ruthless. One of part of their modus operandi and the way they went about war is if you knew the Babylonians were coming, you were terrified before they ever got there because they were known for doing horrific and atrocities in their uh, attempts to wage war and deal with their enemies. And so last week, we saw that Daniel and his three friends, they have been taken captive from Jerusalem, brought back to Babylon in exile, and they are serving in the king's court as advisors or wise men, really because of God's grace. It's, it's, they are there because of the wisdom and skill that God has given them. And as we come to Daniel 2, we have a story about a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has. And so this morning we want to look at kind of three things as we make our way through the events of this chapter. We want to start with looking at Nebuchadnezzar's dream, then Daniel's response, and then finally God's interpretation. So let's begin with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So in verses 1 through 9, Nebuchadnezzar has a troubling dream. It, it's bothering him. He can't sleep. It's disturbing him. And in those days, in that culture, dreams had a lot of significance. They, they, it was felt that they always had some significant meaning or purpose. And if you were a king, your dreams had even more significance because they were often thought to be significant at national and global levels. And so he has this dream and it's bothering him. And so he calls for the magicians and the astrologers and the wise men and, and all of his other court advisors who he calls on in these kind of situations, and he says, I've had this dream, and I want you to make known to me the dream and its interpretation. And so the magicians and the astrologers, they say, oh, certainly, king, we'd be happy to do that. Just tell us what the dream is, and we will be happy to give you the interpretation. Now, that's a pretty good gig, isn't it? I mean, think about it. I mean, if you have a dream, you tell me your dream, and I'll give you an interpretation, and I, I can give you a vague, general, encouraging interpretation, and the chances are you'll probably never know whether it was right or wrong, right? But the king is not having any of that in this situation. He says, no. He says, my word is firm. You will tell me the dream and then give me the interpretation. And he says, if you do... 
I will reward you greatly with honor and wealth and gifts. But if you don't, he says, I will kill you, your families, and I will destroy everything you have. And this wasn't just going to be death. He says, I'm going to do it by tearing you limb from limb, piece by piece. And so you can suspect that the magicians and the astrologers are probably beginning to sweat a little bit now. And so they try again. They say, oh, king, well, please just tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. And the king begins to get a little irritated and angry at this point. And he says, no, you're just... And you can tell that he's kind of mistrusting the validity of their counsel, perhaps, on these things in the past. And he says, no, no way. You're just stalling for time. Tell me the dream, and then I will know that you can give me the interpretation. And so we see their response in verses 10 and 11. It says, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And so they acknowledge that they, they have no power, they have no supernatural insight, they have no wisdom that can meet this Demand, And so we see the king's response in verses 12 and 13. It says, Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. See, the key so furious at their inability to tell him what he wants to know that he not only orders them to be killed, but every wise man and advisor throughout the whole kingdom is going to be destroyed, even if they had nothing to do with this. And so Daniel and his companions are, are caught up in this dilemma. And just imagine how Daniel must have felt at this moment. I mean, put yourself in his shoes for a minute. I mean, God had just been faithful in protecting him and his friends from defiling themselves with the Babylonian diet or getting in trouble because they didn't want to eat that. He's just graciously placed them in positions of influence and power in Nebuchadnezzar's court because they trusted in him. And they were no doubt filled with faith and praising God for his favor and blessing over their lives. And then this happened. And they are about to be caught up in the fate of these charlatan wise men and killed along with all their families. I mean, it seems like a dramatic turn of events where all that good and blessing that they received is all going to be lost. I mean, what a, what a challenging test of their faith in this moment. Will they trust God even when it looks like everything he's done is about to be destroyed and hope seems lost? How will they handle this challenging moment in their lives? But you know, this is really so often how God works in our lives too. 
I mean, maybe you get that great new job and you just know that was God's grace and blessing to you that gave you that. And then three months later, they lay you off. You know, we see this throughout the Bible and the stories of the people in the Bible. I mean, think about it. God promises Abraham that he's going to give him a son. And after waiting 20 years for that promise to be fulfilled and the joy of its fulfillment, God says, now I want you to take him up and sacrifice. Or Moses, who, who is... God places him in the midst of Egyptian power and, and, and authority in the kingdom of the Pharaoh there and uh, tells him that he's going to use him to deliver his people. And then next 40 years, he spent a shepherd in the wilderness. Or maybe David. You know, Samuel comes to David and anoints him as the next king over Israel. I mean, what, what an amazing moment that must have been and then David will spend the next 11 years of his life barely wondering if he's going to survive as Saul seeks to kill him uh, over those 11 years see sometimes God shows up in some meaningful or powerful way to bless you in some way and you know it was him that did that and then it seems like it's all going to be lost or destroyed. I mean, I, I can relate to this in my own life experience. I remember um, not too long after I became a Christian, and some of you kind of know my testimony that before I got saved, I, I lived a pretty wicked, evil life. And, uh, and when I got saved many, many years ago, uh, God was really doing a lot of powerful things in my life, tearing it apart and putting it back together. And uh, one of the things that I was wrestling with during that season was whether I should marry my wife, Margaret, who became my wife. And, and I didn't know, and I was really struggling, because I wasn't sure I could keep that kind of commitment. And uh, so I really kind of sought God, and, and God very graciously affirmed in a number of different ways that I should ask her to marry me. And so I did, and she said yes, and I, man, I, this was great, this is the Lord, the Lord's in this, he's doing it. Um, but there had been some things that I had done in our relationship before I got saved, some things that I had done that were wrong, some ways I had been unfaithful to her. And when I got saved, I thought, okay, you know, I, I went to God and I confessed those things and asked his forgiveness and I, felt confident that he had done that, and so I kind of put those things out of my mind. And then one night, I had a dream, <laughs> and I don't remember exactly what the dream was, to tell you the truth, but I know this, I woke up from that dream, and I knew that God was telling me, you have to tell her what you've done. And as I thought about that, because see, Margaret had always told me, she said, if you're ever treat me that way or you're unfaithful to me that's it there's no second chance and so in that moment I was convinced that God had kind of brought me to this place and the joy of our getting engaged and and now it's all going to be destroyed it's all going to be lost and I had to really wrestle with God. What am I going to do here? Am I going to, am I going to trust him? Am I going to listen to him? Am I going to do what he's wanted me to do? Or not. 
And so I kind of wrestled through. It took me a lot, hours to work through that. Finally, I decided, Lord, you've brought me this far. I'm going to trust you. And so I did. So I confessed to her. And wasn't easy. But by God's grace, she forgave me. And here we are. So, um, but the, this is not uncommon in the way God works in our lives. And um, God is testing Daniel's faith and trust in him in this moment. There will be moments in our lives when God will test our faith and trust in him in similar ways. Will we trust him when it seems like the blessings he's given us seem to be crumbling to the ground around us and, and we don't understand why? Will we trust him even when it's confusing and we don't see how things are going to work out for our good in that moment? Because you see, moments like this, there are often times when God is using those situations to build and strengthen our faith to prepare us for what he has in store for us in the days and years to come. So that our responses when those times come might result in praise and honor and glory to him in how we walk through them. So that brings us to the second thing we want to look at in this chapter, and that's Daniel's response. Let's look at verses 14 through 18 together. It says, Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. And then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So here, as in chapter 1, we see Daniel responding to the captain of the guard with wisdom, with discretion, with humility. And it, but at this point, he has no idea what God is doing in this situation. He has no assurance God will use him to interpret the king's dream. But in faith, he puts himself out there and requests an appointment with the king to, to give him an interpretation that right now he does not have. And he is trusting in faith that God hasn't brought them this far to see them destroyed by the king's edict. And so he immediately goes to seek out his friends and calls them to pray for God's mercy so that they might not be killed along with the other wise men and astrologers. And you know, my guess is it probably wasn't too difficult for them to pray with passion and persistence in that moment. But I think what we can learn from this is that in the midst of this crisis, the first place they run to is to God in prayer. They don't try to come up with a solution in their own wisdom and strength. They don't try to escape and run away from the difficulty. But they cast themselves upon God in prayer, hoping that he will come through for them in his mercy. So what about you? 
Where do you run when a crisis hits your life? I mean, do you try to work through it in your own wisdom and strength? Do you jump to assume that God doesn't care or that he's not for you or for your good because of the trial or crisis? Or maybe do you let fear or anxiety cause you to project the worst possible scenario in how the future will unfold? Or do you run to God, trusting that he has a way through this situation and you can cast your problems and concerns on him as your loving, gracious father? You know, crisis that hit our lives always calls us to run in one of two directions. We will either run to God in those times or away from him. And Daniel is an example for us of where we are to run when the challenges and difficulties of life come our way, as they surely will at some point. And we see the result in verse 19. It says, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So God comes through for Daniel and his friends, reveals the dream and what it means in a vision. And so in gratefulness, and I'm sure what must have been incredible relief, Daniel bursts into praise and thanksgiving to God in verses 20 through 23. And he praises and thanks God for his infinite wisdom and sovereign power and his mercy to give them the answer to their prayers. And Daniel's really filled with joy as God reveals himself to him as the God of all wisdom and power who cares for and protects his people. And so he goes and tells Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, to bring him in before the king so he can give him the interpretation of the dream. So Arioch brings him in, and Arioch tries to suck up a little bit and take some of the credit for himself. He tells the king, hey, I found this guy among the exiles of, of the Judah who can interpret the king's dream like he's been out searching on the king's behalf. The reality is he didn't find anything. Daniel came to him. And so while he wants to take the credit, Daniel, on the other hand, gives a very different picture in his response to the king. Let's look at verses 26 through 30. It says, The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. See, Daniel takes no credit for himself in this matter. He gives all the glory and credit to God. 
And he uses this opportunity to display and reveal to Nebuchadnezzar who God is. To testify before him of God's greatness and power and his kindness to the king and revealing this mystery to him. See, Daniel wants Nebuchadnezzar to see God, not him. And he is a picture, really, of what it looks like to represent God as an ambassador to those who don't know him. And so I think the question for us to consider from Daniel's response is, how much do we do that in our lives as God's people? I mean, do we even see our life this way? I mean, do we see the countless good and blessings God showers on our lives each day as something to be thankful to him for? Do we give him the credit and seek to help people see him in how we explain the good things that happen to us? Or do we take the credit ourselves? Do we show our faith and trust in God before others, even when things aren't going well? I mean, do we try to show people God's wisdom and power and love and how we communicate with other people about the things going on in our lives? Or do we just go about our daily lives unaware, caught up in our own plans and agendas, not being alert to how God may want to use us to communicate and reveal something about who he is to someone who doesn't know him? And Daniel's example, I think, provokes us to consider and reflect on our own role as an ambassador and representative of God and his kingdom. And so finally we come to the third part in this chapter, God's interpretation. So in verses 31 through 35, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar what the dream was. And he not only describes the dream's content, but in verse 29, he told him where he was and what he was doing prior to him having it. And so let's look at his description of the dream in verses 31 through 35. He says, You saw, O king, and behold a great image. And this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, the chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that's the dream. And then in verses 36 through 45, he gives them the, the, the interpretation that God gave him. He tells him that the statue he saw consisted of four different parts. And these four parts were four human kingdoms that would rule over the entire known earth in the years following that time. And he tells them that Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, they are the head of gold in the 
image and then and most commentators kind of agree on the identification of these other kingdoms. The arms and the chest of silver would refer to the Medo-Persian Empire that would conquer Babylon eventually and that would be headed by Cyrus. The middle and thighs of bronze would be Greece, the Grecian Empire, and Alexander the Great. And the legs of iron and feet and toes of iron mixed in clay would be Rome. And while the fourth kingdom seems to refer primarily to the Roman Empire, there may be an element in this part of the vision that really ripples out further into the future, even to the end of the age. But you know, one of the things that I just thought was really interesting about this vision is, um, you know, these four kingdoms, as the progression goes, there is a deterioration from one to the next in the value and the glory and the majesty. From gold to silver to bronze to iron. And so the, the glory of these human kingdoms is deteriorating over time. And yet the toughness and the strength and the endurance is increasing. And you know, the common view that people have about humanity is that we are ascending in human morality and wisdom as time goes by. But this vision seems to tell a very different story. It seems to describe humanity as a decline in the value and quality of human morality and culture as history goes on and an increase in the hardness and power of human government. And this is not a picture of humanity getting better and better as time goes on. But there is another kingdom described in this dream, and we can see that in verses 44 through 46. It says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and it's interpretation, sure. So in Daniel's description of the dream in verse 34, he said that during the days of that fourth kingdom of Rome, there would be a stone that was cut out by no human hand, a stone that would be of divine initiative and origin. And this stone would strike that fourth kingdom and ultimately break it in pieces. And while it will begin as a very small stone, it will eventually become a mountain that will fill the entire earth. And this is God's kingdom. And this kingdom will ultimately crush all human kingdoms and their remnants will blow away like dust in the wind. Reminds me when our kids were growing up and we would go on vacation and I would painfully entertain them with singing. And one of my favorite songs to sing was a song by Kansas, Dust in the Wind. You know. 
all our dreams and only for a moment and the moment's gone. That's what this is going to be like when God's kingdom finally has its way. And this kingdom will never be given to another people. It will never be taken over or conquered by anyone or anything. It will be an everlasting kingdom that will bring all other kingdoms to a disastrous end. And the stone that was cut out by no human hand that would come to initiate this kingdom of God was the coming of Jesus Christ during the days of the Roman Empire. Jesus is that stone. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2, verses 6 through 8. He says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. And he's speaking about Jesus Christ. He says, A cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Peter says that God is laying a stone in Zion, and this stone is Jesus, and this Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the foundation stone upon which the kingdom of God will be built. And the honor, being part of that kingdom, is for those who will believe, who will put their faith and hope and trust in Jesus and make him their Lord and Savior. That's how you get into the kingdom. And he says, but for those who do not believe, if you reject what God has to say about who Jesus was and what he did and why he came, if you disbelieve that, if you disobey that, that you will stumble over that stone to your destruction. And so if you want to be part of this eternal kingdom of God, now is the time to do so. The Babylonian astrologers and wise men, you see, they got it wrong. They said that only the gods who do not dwell with human flesh could know and interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But God did come and dwell among human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is why Jesus came into this world to make a way for sinful, fallen people like us who could never qualify to be a part of that kingdom, to make a way for us to be able to enter into it. And he does that. He comes and takes on the form of a human being, becomes a man so that he can be a representative for us and he lives for us a perfect obedient life so that he can earn God's favor and righteousness so that he can then credit that or give that to us. And then he gives himself to die on a cross once again to die for us so that he can take our sin upon himself, pay the price God's justice required for that sin so that we can be forgiven. And by putting our faith and trust in Jesus, his forgiveness, is, his payment becomes ours and we get God's forgiveness and his righteousness becomes ours and we get a place in that 
eternal kingdom of God. Paul describes it this way for those who have believed in Colossians 1.13. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So if by chance, and you're here today or listening online, and you've never placed your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've never committed your life to follow and trust in Him, to be a Savior who came for you, God's inviting you into His eternal kingdom. That invitation is still open. You can come if you will choose to trust him and believe what he says about Jesus. But if you pass on choosing to put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will stumble over that stone and one day be crushed by it. You will be part of the dust that will be blown away when Jesus returns to establish God's eternal kingdom in all of its fullness. Paul describes that day in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. He says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Which kingdom Do you want to find yourself in when that day comes? The choice is yours. And so Daniel ends his interpretation with these words in verse 45. He says, the dream is certain and its interpretation sure. God has testified that these things are true and will come to pass. And so this chapter closes in verses 46 through 49 with Nebuchadnezzar really paying homage to Daniel and Daniel's God and promoting Daniel and his friends to even higher positions of authority and power in the Babylonian kingdom. And so as we consider the events of this story in this chapter, I mean, while there are many things we can learn and apply in our lives from Daniel and his example, you know, this story is really much more about God than it is about Daniel. And I don't want us to miss the glory of the infinitely wise, multitasking God here. Because through this chapter, God is working at multiple levels, doing multiple things, all of which... He is working together in perfect harmony and unity. And so let me close by giving you five things God is doing in this story. Number one, he is protecting his people from danger and destruction. 
I mean, even though innocent, Daniel and his friends' lives are in jeopardy because of Nebuchadnezzar's decree to kill all the wise men. And God graciously provides a way not only to rescue them, but to abundantly bless them and their faithfulness to him when all is said and done. Number two, at the same time, he is using this situation to build and strengthen their faith to prepare them for what will be even greater challenges to come. You see, the confidence and trust that they have in God through seeing him work in this situation, seeing his trustworthiness here, that will help them to stand firm in their faith and obedience to him in even more difficult circumstances as the book of Daniel unfolds. Like, will they choose faith and obedience to God when faced with being cast into a blazing furnace? or a den of lions, if they do. If I could have the worship team come and join me. The third thing God is doing in this chapter is he is revealing himself as far superior to the Babylonian gods and wisdom. The Babylonian wise men and astrologers, they are helpless in this matter. They have no wisdom, no power to do anything. But God reveals himself as the all-wise God who knows all things, even your dreams. And he is the God who not only knows all things regarding the future, but who has dominion over all things now and in the future. I mean, he is the one who gave Nebuchadnezzar his power and kingdom, and he can take it away in an instant if he so chooses, as we will see as the next couple of chapters unfold. He has dominion over all the kingdoms of man, and his kingdom will finally and ultimately prevail over all. There is no God like him. God himself says it in the words of Isaiah the prophet in verse, chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. It says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And you see, this same all-knowing God who has dominion over all things, who knows and decrees the end from the beginning, he's the same God who holds your future in his sovereign hands as well. David Jeremiah says it this way. He says, you may not know what the future holds, but you know who holds the future. You see, the wisdom of this world has nothing to offer compared with the wisdom of this God. I mean, where would you want to look for wisdom in your life? I mean, why would you want to look anywhere else than the wisdom of an all-knowing God who created and has dominion over all things now and all things that will be? Number four. And this is, this is where it begins to just kind of blow my mind a little bit. 
You know, God is working in Nebuchadnezzar's life through this story to bring him to faith in the one true God. I mean, just if we step back for a moment and look at the bigger picture in Daniel, chapters 2 through 4 are really the story of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. Chapter 2 is the first in a series of three different episodes where God reveals himself to Nebuchadnezzar to bring him to a place of personal faith in this God. And each of these stories is God working in his life to bring him to what clearly seems to be a place of saving faith in his life. See, God is the one who has set all this up. God has sent Daniel and his three friends there. God gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream in the first place. God has positioned Daniel to be a testimony to his sovereign power and wisdom in this dream situation. And over the next couple chapters, God will continue to reveal himself to Nebuchadnezzar until in Daniel 4.37, he declares these words publicly to the entire Babylonian empire. Daniel 4.37, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I mean, does this put you on tilt a little bit? God has determined to be gracious and merciful to Nebuchadnezzar. To save the most powerful and possibly the most ruthless ruler on the face of the earth. I mean, what, what kindness and mercy God has towards the undeserving. And if God would save a person like Nebuchadnezzar, who might be the last person we think might come to believing faith, there is no one who is beyond the reach of his grace and mercy to save. And then finally, number five, God is making himself known and revealing his glory to the nations. See, Babylon is the ruling empire of the entire known world at this time. Nebuchadnezzar's conversion and his position as king would have a significant influence on God being known and the testimonies of his works being known throughout the Babylonian empire. And we will see this take place more clearly later in the book. But you know, one of the things that's interesting about this text is that In the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 2, verse 4, the language that the original was written in changes from Hebrew to Aramaic and stays in Aramaic through the end of chapter 7 and then goes back to Hebrew. Wonder why. And nobody really knows for sure. But Aramaic was the language that was commonly spoken throughout the known world in that time. And it's as if God is intentionally positioning these stories and these things that are happening in these chapters for all the world to be able to know. See, God is revealing himself and his glory to the nations of the world. 
And, and this young Israelite, Daniel, this maybe even a teenager and his three friends are the primary instruments God is using to do that through the events recorded in this book. I mean, this is the glory of the great multitasking God we believe in and serve. And if God can so perfectly orchestrate the complexity of these multiple things at a personal and global level in perfect unity and harmony in Daniel, I mean, can we not trust him with the challenges and situations in our life? Can we not trust him to care and provide for us as his people here and now? I mean, he wants to use ordinary people like Daniel and his three friends and people like us to bring about his good purposes in this world if we will trust him and walk with him in faith and obedience. He is the infinitely wise, multitasking sovereign God who is always working all things for his good purposes and the good of his people.